0: Good morning. They were playing mind games with them on that driving question, weren't they? We're going to offer counseling to those couples after this. Um, One thing you guys didn't get privy to was in first service that one of the questions was, what is something annoying your spouse does? Um, That was a good one. It was a good one. Go back and watch the video on that one. Um, But we wanted to have a little bit of fun with that because this week I had something similar that I posed to the wives of our pastoral staff. And so I reached out to my wife, to John's wife, to Derek's wife, and to Matt's wife um, and asked them a question because I wanted the honest truth about where their marriage is and maybe something that hasn't changed over their time. So this is the question I asked them. What is something annoying, nonsensical, or frustrating that your spouse does that has not changed since you've been married? So... All four of the wives are on one email chain. Proved to be a problem. Because it was like adding fuel to a fire as they started responding. Within 10 seconds of sending that email out, my wife responds back, do we have to select just one? (laughs) No lie, 10 seconds later, Derek, our executive pastor, his wife Becky reached out and said, are you forming a support group? (laughs) So this is just honest truth here about some of the pastors that you guys have on staff. Uh, It's not all of them, but it's some of them. So my wife and I have been married... 12 years, almost 13, it'll be 13 in October, and my wife, oh yeah, look at that, isn't that nice, that's very great, so young and youthful, Um, my wife said this, knowing I'd have to speak today, she held back a lot, she was very kind to me, she's very gracious, she said, when Brian is tired, he reverts back to his hillbilly dad's language skills of mumbling and grumbling, I cannot understand a darn thing he says. I will note that it's gotten better over the 12 years, probably because of my constant responses of, huh? You need to enunciate, and straight up, I have no idea what you just said. The other one that she throws in here, it comes around the driving, which is why I bring it up. I'm I'm very quick to say, calm down. Husbands, don't tell your wife ever to calm down. I'll save you that counseling session. Don't tell your wives to calm down. That was in her email also. The second pastor... Pastor Matt, he's our West Falls Church campus pastor and our youth pastor. Him and his wife, Robin, have been married almost 15 years. Here's her words. Since we've been dating, Matt's definition of flirting has been very different than mine. One of our biggest fights in college came when he tackled me in the snow and shoved snow down the back of my shirt. He said he was flirting, and that's when I knew we had two very different definitions of flirting she goes on. It, it was pretty good. In an effort to cuddle, Matt will sometimes literally knock the book right out of my hands in bed. The first time he did it, I thought he had a reflex problem. <laughs> Despite my many reminders of, and definition of flirting, he still resorts to this, which annoys me 15 years later. I talked to Matt in the office about this one. He swears it's like the, the go get you skill. Like he's like, no, she loves it. She loves, like I will literally jump, run into the room, jump on the bed and knock whatever's in her hands out. She loves it. Gets her every time. And I'm like, I don't. Know. not according to the email, not according to the email. Becky, Derek's wife, he's our executive pastor. They've been married almost 18 years. Yeah. Derek, look at that hair. Derek does a lot of grocery shopping, which is a huge help to me. It's the only kind of shopping he likes and he loves a good deal. When something non-perishable is on sale, he buys it, and a lot of it. For instance, we once had an entire Toyota Corolla trunk full of Quaker Oats Square cereal, because they were two for one. Another time, he bought over 30 cans of beans. We usually have at least eight bags of shredded cheese in our second refrigerator. I might have to go to the grocery store at 11 p.m. to grab milk, but we can eat rice like we're on Survivor for 39 days. (laughs) John, our lead pastor, his wife, Krista, they've been married almost 35 years. We're trying to bring that suit back for him. <laughs> 35 years. This is what she says. John thoroughly loves eating good food. But he has this annoying habit of taking all the food I've prepared for dinner, and I want to stop there and insert my own comment. is a great cook. She does great meals, and so this just adds a layer of complexity of why this annoys her. It says, annoying habit of taking all the food I've prepared, placing it in one large bowl, adding a teaspoon of sugar, and stirring it up like he's baking a cake. <laughs> totally grosses me out. But then he likes to eat it with a huge spoon like our kids did when they were three. Get a picture of that in your mind. <laughs> when he gets to doing this, he's totally in his happy place. while well, I am not that's our pastoral staff for you. It's very exciting. I don't know what you guys hope to see change. Many of us have been married a number of years and some things never change, but I don't know what for you, you want to see change, whether it's in your relationship or in your life or in your faith. Usually there's something in us that's looking at our situation, our our circumstances and saying, man, I wish this would change. That's what we're talking about this morning. And this theme of marriage, a little bit of Valentine's Day, creeps into our passage this morning in an unexpected way, does it in an unexpected way. And I used to look at this passage and go, why is this verse even here? Why does this matter? And why does John use this analogy? And I'm going to talk to you this morning because as I've read it over the past couple weeks, it's begun to make more and more sense to me. Our passage, John 3, 22 through 36, is seated right in between some amazing stories, right between some amazing stories. And so I always felt like this passage was transitional, like you could gloss over it and you wouldn't miss anything. It wasn't really that important. Because we start out in the Gospel of John with this amazing prologue in John 1. And then we go into this miracle at a wedding where Jesus turns the water into wine. And then we have a story of Nicodemus, this high religious official, who's coming to Jesus at night in a secret mission to find out what God is all about. And then we have our little 15 verses. And then the next passage is the Samaritan woman at the well. Like we have great stories, but we have these 15 verses here that you're just like, why is this even here? Why does this matter? And I feel like over the past couple weeks, as I've been looking at this, it's begun to make sense. And seeing who Jesus is in this passage changes dramatically who we see ourselves to be. So let's read them. John 3, 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. I need to stop there. So we need to understand a little bit of the, the context here. John, the baptizer, not John our author, but John, this person who's baptizing people, he's gaining a following, and he's got his own disciples and he's baptizing. And Jesus is nearby, Baptizing his own people and building his own following. And baptism from the beginning of Israel's history was incredibly common. It was incredibly common. It became the indicator, the preparation for entering into two main things. So, baptism, what it would look like in, in first century Judaism and beyond, is they would actually strip off all their clothes, go into the water, and wash themselves in fresh water, which in that time wasn't very common. Wasn't very common to take these types of baths. It was a ritual bath. It was a ceremonial bath that helped wash off all the impurities of the things that they would touch in daily life, and it prepared them for two things: it prepared them for worship and for weddings. Baptism prepared them for worship and for weddings because they were entering into something sacred that they need to kind of wash all the defilement off of. Again, it's a ritual act. In the preparation, they're preparing themselves mentally and physically and spiritually for entering into something sacred in the presence of God, either by worship or wedding. There's something powerful here, and it sets up our analogy in these following verses. Verse 24. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And is now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. If you've been in church any amount of time, you've probably heard a sermon on this final phrase out of verse thirty: "He must become greater, and I must become less." And it's an amazing statement. Like if you get your mind around that statement, your relationship with God, or even your relationship with other people, it changes things. It's essential for following Jesus. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. But we miss the point of this passage if that's where we end. All the sermons I've heard about on this passage have ended there. And I think there's something deeper that's being shown that we need to pay attention to. Because in these verses, John says and identifies Jesus as something special. Identifies Jesus as something special. John the baptizer says to himself, I'm the one preparing the way for the Messiah, the one preparing the way for the bridegroom. In essence, you can think of John the Baptist as the best man, as the best man at the wedding. The shosh being in Hebrew, that's who he is. He is preparing the way for the groom to come and to marry a bride. He's the best man in this story. Have you ever been to a wedding where accidentally the best man marries the bride? Anybody? Anybody? Like that gets awkward really quick, right? Like if somebody gets up and they throw the groom off the altar and all of a sudden the best man marries the bride, like that's an unexpected ending. That's what John's disciples are doing. That's what John the Baptist is drawing their attention to. He's looking at his disciples and saying, guys, I'm not the real deal. You're not supposed to be in relationship with me. I'm preparing the way for the one in whom you're supposed to have a relationship with. He's the best man. And it was a big deal in Jewish culture to prepare the way for the groom to be married to a bride. And John the Baptist is saying, I'm just the best man. I am not the groom. It's something powerful that we need to see. Here's what John is telling his disciples I'm simply here preparing the way for Jesus' coming, but you are the reason for Jesus' coming. John's preparing the way for Jesus' coming, but his disciples, you and I, by way of extension, are the reason for Jesus' coming. And we have to wrap our minds around that. Because John tells Jesus something unique. He calls Jesus a bridegroom. He calls him a groom. And what that means for you and I is that we're the bride. We're the bride. Now it may feel a little funny. For me, twelve years ago, I fulfilled the role of groom in my wedding. I fulfilled a role of groom. And so it feels a little funny, a little bit of tension there for me to call myself a bride. But what John the Baptizer is talking about, he's not picturing Jesus up at the altar marrying an individual. There's a whole 2,000 years of history that go into this analogy as God and Jesus as groom that we're going to unpack over the next few minutes. You may be tempted to lean out because you're like, this is, this is weird. It's a, it's a bride thing. I'm not a bride. I'm not marrying Jesus. But this is where we need to lean in. Because whether you're married, unmarried, remarried, or don't want to get married, this analogy will change everything for how we see our relationship with God and how we see our life. So we need to begin with Jewish history. At the beginning in Genesis 1 is pictured a wedding ceremony. And God is wedding himself to creation, to humanity. He actually oversees the first wedding ceremony between Adam and Eve. And then we have this history leading up to the nation of Israel where Israel is in captivity in Egypt and God is pursuing them like a groom pursues a bride. He's pursuing them, trying to win over their attention. And what does he do? He rescues them. He fights for them. He delivers them. And in Exodus 19, he brings them to this mountain and says, you guys need to prepare because I'm going to offer you a marriage vow. So what do they need to do? In Exodus 19, Moses says, wash yourselves. Prepare yourself because you're going to enter into worship and you're going to enter into a wedding covenant. Prepare yourself so the people of Israel wash themselves. This mikvah in Hebrew, this ceremonial washing. And God delivers the vows of this wedding ceremony. He delivers them. He says, here's all the things I'm going to do to you. I'm promising myself to you. And in Exodus 24, what does Israel respond with? I do and I will. Sound familiar, right? Like you go to a wedding today, you hear I do's and you hear I will's. And that's exactly what happens in Exodus 24. Israel responds with I do and I will. I'm responding to this marriage covenant. And so for the rest of Israel's history leading up to Jesus' time, every time Israel is like hitting on all cylinders in their relationship with God, it's called a marriage. But as soon as they start walking away, as soon as they start getting tempted by other gods or relying on their own strength or doing whatever they want, it's described as an adultery. This analogy extends throughout all of scripture and it's a powerful one to keep track of. The Makilta, it's a Jewish text, talks about the meaning and interpretation of Exodus 19, writes this. The Lord came from Sinai to receive Israel just as a bridegroom comes forth to receive his bride. Bridegroom coming forth to receive his bride. At the bottom of your bulletin, I put a lot of additional reading. There's a great book on there, but there's a lot of scripture passages also. Because I wanted to draw your attention to how how prolific these verses are. Like it just runs throughout from beginning to end, this idea of God as groom. For the Jew to get this one relationship right, was to experience who they were created to be. Their purpose would be fulfilled because they were understanding who they were supposed to be in relationship with. To get this one relationship right would define and clarify who they were. You get the right partner, you get the right marriage partner, everything else goes well, right? You get the wrong partner, things go down a different path. And so Israel over and over again is challenged to pick the right partner. Who are you going to be unified to? All the verses that I've given you at the bottom of the bulletin, I want to summarize some of the characteristics of God in them. Because we need a picture of who he is. The groom, God, is devoted. He fights for us. He is loyal. He never gives up. He never puts us down, but he builds us up. He's got our back. He stands by us in sickness and in health. He stands by you for better or for worse. He's always there, never to leave us or forsake us. What person girl or guy, wouldn't want this type of relationship? Who wouldn't want to link arms with a God like this, to be united to a God who will fight life's battles with us and never leave our side? See, it's not an emotional, lovey-dovey, like warm, fuzzy feeling type of marriage. If you've been married any number of years, you realize like some of those feelings kind of waver (laughs) every now and then. Wavers a little bit. No, I'm the only one. Okay. Uh, They waver a little bit, and you have to draw back to that covenant, right? Right? You have to say, no, I've made a decision to be partner to this person. I'm going to be committed. I'm going to be selfless. I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going to be humble. It falls back on that commitment. And that's the type of relationship we're talking about is that intentional partnership, the unification with God. If you start a business and you get a business partner with you, who wouldn't want a partnership like this where your business partners filters all the light, all the company's decisions through what's best for the partnership or the business? who's going to stand by you. They're not going to side do side business without you. They're going to pull it in. Or who wouldn't want to go to war with somebody like this? A person on your right or your left where you're going into, into battle with that you know is on the same mission. Your hearts are in sync. Your goals are in sync. And you know that that person, no matter what comes, is never going to leave your side. They're going to fight with you through thick and thin. They're going to lay their life down for you. That's the image of God that we have in Scripture. And that's part of the analogy that uh, John is drawing out when he uses this marriage analogy. John the Baptist is telling his followers and us that if we're going to see change in our life, we have to focus on two areas. This relationship impacts these two areas. First, love, this relationship changes our priorities and it changes our perspective. You can't be married and live like you're single. Well, you can, but it doesn't work very well, right? You can't be married and live like you're single or things start to break down. At the beginning, I mentioned the pastor's wives, poked a little fun at them. But I asked the wives another question. This is important for where we're going. I asked them, what is something that has changed for the better? Or a great quality that has remained since the day you got married? Matt's wife, Robin, said this. Matt has always been intentional about encouraging me and supporting me as I grow in my faith. Over the years, he has been more open and vulnerable with me, which has brought us closer together. I appreciate that he values my opinions. Derek's wife, Becky, said this As our children get older, their schedules and emotional needs have challenged us both individually and as a couple. It's comforting and so important for us to have each other to get through it. We are partners, teammates, and friends. Krista said this about John. I have to say that the closer John gets to Jesus, the better our marriage has become. John has developed a servant's heart and the highest character that makes a good marriage a great one. He has grown from being him focused to us focused. Love changes our priorities. Changes our priorities. When we begin to filter who we are and what we do in light of the relationship, then all of a sudden everything starts to fall into alignment. Chris's comment about John being kind of less him-focused and more us-focused hits the nail on the head. One scholar says Christian marriage is not a ball and chain, it's a cross. It's not a ball and chain, it's a cross. And this is the mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5 when it says marriage is a great mystery and it's the mystery of Christ laying himself down for the church. This is the mystery. See, the cross lets us know that selflessness and sacrifice are the way of love. Selflessness and sacrifice are the way of love. Another scholar sees Jesus' death as the consummation of his wedding vow, of his marriage vow, because in his death, he fully gives himself to you, to his bride, fully pours out his life in his death. He lays everything down, and here's the meaning of it all. To find our true selves, we have to lose ourselves. Find our true selves, we have to lose ourselves. To have a life-giving relationship, whether it's with Jesus, with somebody else, to have a life-giving relationship, you have to give of your life. You have to give of your life. That's why the cross is so important here because Jesus gets up on the cross and gives his whole life. But that's only part of the story. Have you seen a relationship where one person in the marriage is constantly giving? Constantly giving. Like, don't look at your spouse right now. You're always constantly giving. And the other person is like, yeah, just bring it on. Just pour it out, pour it out. And I'm just taking. And that one person is just constantly taking the other person's life. Like, sucking it. Like, that's draining. We call that dysfunctional, right? Where somebody's always giving their life and the other person's always taking it. It's the same with God. Jesus has poured out his life fully. And in order for this to be energizing, for faith to be energizing, not only does he have to pour out his life, but we have to pour our life out back to him. Because relationships only work when both partners are pouring their lives into the relationship, into the relationship. And that requires us to change and shift our priorities. My wife over the past 12 plus years has had this saying about equality and equity within marriage. And I think she's joking. I hope she's joking. Her refrain has been since day one. What's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine. Anybody ever heard that? What's yours is mine, what's mine is mine. Like It feels it's kind of fun, but are you living like you're single when it comes to faith? Are you in a relationship with Jesus or, or God, and you're, you're looking up there and say, okay, God, whatever is yours is mine. Thank you so much. I want to benefit from it. I want to experience all the blessings, the answers to prayer, but what's mine is mine. Like once you've poured out your life, now it's all mine. What's yours is mine. What's mine is mine. The relationship breaks down. It requires us to change something else. It's a change of perspective. Change of perspective. To have a life-giving relationship, you have to give of your life. And this can be devastating. When we're doing it with somebody that's flawed, that's constantly taking that's thinking about themselves. And so many of us here have been in relationships like that. Where the family member, the coworker, the friend, the spouse is always taking and never giving back. And it leaves us empty. And that's why verses 31 through 36 are important. John gives us these verses. The one who comes from above, speaking of Jesus, is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed all things in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John gives us these verses, and they echo a lot of what's in the first part of John 3 with Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. John the baptizer is reminding us that Jesus is above everything else. If you look at the characteristics here, what John is drawing attention to is he's unlike any other earthly human being. He's not flawed, constantly thinking of himself, and therefore if we give him our life, he's going to take it and abuse it. He's saying because Jesus is above all, because he's from heaven— He is without limit. He is without end. He is eternal. And what that means is that vow that he gives you, that vow, that promise that he makes to us, won't end upon his death. It's eternal. It goes on and on and on. It's unbound. I want to summarize for you. Because of who Jesus is, not even death will end his vow. Nothing will separate you from the benefits of uniting yourself to God. This marriage is eternal and without limit. And therefore, should be the basis of everything we do here and now. It changes our perspective. Changes our perspective. I have a buddy that's been married a little over two years. He's a good buddy of mine. We have a lot of open conversations, talk about our relationship a lot. And uh, he's, a, he's a great guy. He's one of the nicest guys I know. And I want to talk about their situation. I've got to be mindful that some of you may be in a similar situation because I'm going to talk about finances. And talk about split finances. No condemnation if you've got split finances in your marriage. I've helped couples figure out what that looks like for them. What I want to draw attention to is his perspective on his split finances because it has bearing on our message this morning. So my buddy and his wife, like I said, they've been married a little over two years, and they're growing their family. They just had a child. They're thinking about another or adopting another. And he's got this tension in his mind like, we need to have a bigger house, and I want to be closer to work. How do we get there? And so they're formalizing all these goals and trying to think about it. And at the same time, as I'm talking with him, he's got a hobby that takes a lot of money. And every month I, I look at him and as we're having these house conversations and everything else, cause he's like, you're so blessed. You have this nice house. You live closer to work. Like, I just want to get there. And then he's like dropping a couple hundred bucks a month on a hobby. I look at him. I was like, well... You know, I think you can get there. Like, there's stuff around. You know, have you cut finances, whatever. And talking through this, as I said, we're very open with each other. And he's, he buys something. And I look at him and I say, well, what does your wife think about that? He said, what do you mean? What do you mean, what does she think? Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, this is my little pot. Like, it doesn't affect the marriage. Like, it doesn't matter what she thinks because this is my money over here. We've got our joint money and our joint goals, but this is mine over here. I said, yeah, but you've got this goal So, like, you would think you would filter that little side money into that goal. And he's like, well, no, because we've agreed. I'm like, do you see the tension? He's got a goal. His family has a goal. He's got a goal with his wife. But then he's got this little pot over here. That's all his. And it has no bearing or touch with his marriage, his relationship, his goals. And he's disconnected them. What areas are you living like you're single? What's in your pot over here? Is it a hobby? Is it a guilty pleasure? Is it work? Is it an attitude? Is it something that you do that you look at and you say, God, you have no bearing on my pot. This is mine over here. Everything else you can have, but this is over here. What areas are you living like you're single? Or are you allowing your relationship to govern the whole part of your life? Because until we do that, then life doesn't get energized, faith doesn't become energized, and we remain stuck. Just like Matt, Derek, John, and myself. For our marriages to be the healthiest, for them to thrive, we have to do what's best for the relationship. We need to constantly filtering who we are and what we want to do through the lens of what's best for our relationship. If you're not a follower this morning, if you don't profess Jesus, if you don't want to follow him, if you're unsure where things are, This text is an invitation to you, an invitation to be connected, to be united with somebody, with a God who will give you a new name, who will set you free from things, who will stand by you in the thick and thin. He'll fight life's battles with you and never leave you or forsake you. It's an upgrade. It's an upgrade. And when we begin to filter our life through that decision, it changes everything. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a Jesus follower, what that means is you are the bride of Jesus. You're the bride of Jesus. It's an analogy for how we're supposed to be united with Jesus Christ and allowing that relationship to govern everything else in our lives in a powerful way. The goal this morning is not to be married and miserable, but married and mindful. Married and mindful, allowing those things to change our priorities and our perspective. Are you filtering who you are? what you do, what you hope to gain in this world through the lens of your relationship with Jesus. Here's your question for this week that I want you to think about. What area of my life am I living like I'm single that I need to begin filtering through my relationship with Jesus? Because when we do this, our faith will be energized. Pray with me. God, we thank you that you have pursued us. That, Lord, you have gained gained our attention that you've called to us and you want us in this deep unifying partnership with you that will change everything because you have everything to offer thank you that you stand by us that you've promised to never leave us that your vows and your commitment to us are unending and i pray this week that we would get a glimpse of who you are and that might inform who we are that we would take kind of these pots in our lives, these single things in our lives and begin filtering through our relationship with you that we might see everything else changed because of it. In your name, amen.